0: This is the Insight is Capital podcast. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual podcasters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of advisoranalyst.com. This podcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this podcast is intended to be considered as advice. Hello and welcome to the Insight is Capital podcast. I'm Pierre Daly, managing editor of advisoranalyst.com. Our guest is Mark Noble executive vice president at horizons etfs in charge of etf strategy over the years we've had so many incredible conversations most often cut short by our mutually busy schedules but i think it's pretty safe to say that we share a mutual love for the investment business and for the knowledge of the investment business Uh, markets that is as well not just the business of course and as we've grown up in this business we're humbled by the idea that the more you learn about financial markets the more you realize that there's so much more to learn. Wherever he is, he always strives to be the smartest, most well-informed person in the room. Mark has invested his professional life in developing and sharing insight, permanent student of history and markets. What we have in common is a love for the financial advice business and drive to help advisors with their clients. Without further ado, thanks so much for joining us, Mark Noble, Horizons ETFs.
1: Thanks, Pierre. Thank you. Overhyping <laughs> me a bit, but let's uh, uh, so all take
0: it. Well, it's uh, <laughs> it's earned. It's well, well, well earned, Mark. Um, we're long overdue to have this conversation. We've been talking about doing a podcast together for a couple of years now, right. and and here we are. Just a little over a month ago, which feels like an eternity now. We talked about doing this podcast, and we were going to talk about some of the more controversial arguments surrounding the ETF industry growth phenomenon. But since then, of course, the world has changed uh, dramatically in the wake of COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, The world economy has been brought to a rapid standstill with national business and work shutdowns in the world's largest economies, uh, China, Japan, Western Europe, and the Americas, U.S. and Canada for the sake of stemming the spread of the epidemic. Um, Markets, of course, as we know now, uh, have been rocked by the economic shock. When it comes to ETFs, in the context of the conversation we're having today, these controversial ideas we were planning to talk about have suddenly become more relevant because like everything else in our lives, they're being put to the test. And all that we know about ETFs has being put to the test this last month, um, a lot of those controversial arguments that we were going to talk about, but but of course, the ETF discussion doesn't necessarily you know supersede what's going on. It's quite a, it's quite tragic actually what's happening in the world, and it's quite and it's and it's uh, to put it mildly, it's scary. Mark, where do we begin?
1: You know, the one thing is a lot of us lived through the two thousand eight two thousand and nine financial crisis. Um, I was a journalist at that time, so I was deeply covering that. That's really where I learned a lot of what I know today Uh, you know you really learn understand things in stress case scenarios Um, this is I'm finding exceedingly more difficult from an investor and advisor perspective Um, all of the social anxiety around COVID-19 side but really on the investment side a lot more difficult because there's no clarity in terms of where we're going to go Um, you know in 2008 2009 that had the potential to completely collapse the entire financial system global right because you had a real estate led uh bubble that collapsed all of a sudden a lot of assets were sort of worthless but at the same token you did have semblance of a real economy in place right people were working people were buying things uh they stopped buying less afterwards there was more definition right um you also knew who the losers and winners were right you didn't buy financial stocks and you went long you know other types of industries uh that were well positioned to move forward um what's happening here in the market now is we really have no idea we have no idea what the market is going to look like uh when we return right and and we 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 have the number one question right now is when do we return um if we return in two months we probably are looking at some sort of v-shaped recovery i i do believe that uh, if we return in six months, um, we could do irreparable damage to our global economy and supply chains, which could take a decade or so to, to work out. We could be looking at a depression kind of scenario. Uh, the issue for investors is this lack of clarity makes it very, very difficult to sort of navigate because if I'm, you know, I always make, I uh, have a lot of dark humor, but I mean, you know, I make the joke like if if, if if we're going to if we're going to keep getting things getting worse, then, yeah, I'm going to be buying, you know, medical device companies and shorting life insurers. Right. Like that's that's, yeah. you know, right. But we don't have that kind of clarity. So the reason and the market, if you look at what's moving in the market, it's 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 complete capitulation. Like at the worst of it two weeks ago, there's only two asset classes up, I think, on March 23rd, which were short term treasuries and cash. Right. That's that's crazy. Um, and the reason for that is yeah. because there's really no clarity in where things are going to go. But on well, that it's sh- point, yeah, you, you, yeah,
0: you're right. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but you're right. It's, yeah, no it's problem. Really, it, it's really being like, an everything must go market, right? Right. I mean, everyone's trying to raise money to, you know, to stave off their losses or or to shore up their accounts or to shore up their margin, whatever it is, whatever the motivation is. Like everything, you know, we've seen we've seen this continuous. Sell off in in things that were thought to be of high quality, even gold, uh, where where you know you know you, you're seeing dumping, and and so it's not it's got it's it's not a subjective. Oh, I love this, and I'm going to stick with it. Is uh this is the best thing I've got? I'm going to dump it because I need the money. I
1: Correct. need to
0: raise ca- I need to raise cash, and yeah. So you're right. Cash has been king, and uh, you know almost everything else um, has been. Uh, I mean, with the with the exception of. Uh, those uh, segments of the bond market, for example, that have been that have been aided by the Fed stimulus. um, You know, those are the only things that have really had a a sharp rebound uh, sort of at the outset of those announcements. But anyways, go ahead, Mark.
1: No, and, 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 and you hit the nail on the head. And really, from an investor standpoint, because I could throw at you technicals, fundamentals, you know, sales, growth, earnings, but all that stuff is meaningless in this marketplace because we don't know what the world looks like when we're done. Um, so really, the, with this interesting psychology point, and I'm, I'm surprised there's not been more talk on it, but it's, it's, it's market psychology is really at this point in time, you have to make a call of whether you think things are going to get better or whether they're going to get worse. And if they're going to get worse, then you just batten the hatches down and wait. If you think things are going to get better, then you got to have a thesis on what it is you're going to invest in. And I'll give you just one quick example, I mean, if we look at, um, we have a subadvisor that does a lot of dividend analytics on dividend stocks globally and they use AI. And What they're finding is, you know, you've seen certain sectors like real estate, utilities, obviously consumer discretionary, the dividend cut likelihood now on those stocks as their prices have fallen, as their earning assumptions are likely going to be restated is as huge right they're likely going to have to cut dividends same globally with financial companies and being given trillions of dollars of money from governments governments are not going to want them using those to do buybacks and and, and boost their dividends so you likely have impairment in those sectors but then on the flip side let's look at sectors that may be well positioned um what's the new staples well what you're looking at right now you both you and i are sitting at home is technology right that was that's that's something that's very new and then you've got consumer staples, right? I, I don't think anyone thinks Costco is going anywhere anytime soon. If you've had the uh, fortune of going to the parking lot at a Costco, account. yeah,
0: it's a so, madhouse.
1: <laughs> and, and and so basically, if you're an investor, you got to make a call here, right? And the way that I look at it, again, this is the psychology point. It, it literally does come down to this: half glass full, half glass empty. Point is. If I think things are going to be better, then I've got to start buying some things that I think fit my thesis, which is, you know, for me, it'd be technology. We'll talk about corporate credit. Um, those would be things that I'd be looking to buy. If my thesis very, is that things uh, are going uh,
0: to right. be... Very selectively. Yeah, very selectively. I mean, you're talking yeah. about making very strict selections. It's no longer simply, I mean, you really have to become a, a picker again. Um, you know, given given the last 10 or 11 years where, where it was easy to be an indexer. Uh, you know, that's all been turned on its head now, right? I mean, you you can't just, you just can't approach the market anymore and say, I'm just going to buy everything and and buy the averages, uh, the indexes. Uh, uh, Now it's, it's, uh, oh, wait a minute. Uh, Do I want to own everything anymore or do I want to, you know, anyways, go on.
1: No. And, 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 and just the final point is, if I think things are going to get worse, honestly, like my RRSP and my and my investment portfolio was sort of the least of my concerns, right? Like it is like like if you if you think things if you think things are going to get worse from here, we're talking about you know millions of deaths. We're talking about a complete shutdown of the global economy. There's just no game plan for that, other than sort of going into sort of a, a more survival mode and looking at sort of like a 1933 to 1937 kind of scenario, in which case kind of all bets are off. Um, so. I, I have you have to work under psychologically in the auspice that things are going to get better if you're an investor and you want to find things to buy in this market. So I could, you know, people can make a, a strong argument to me that things are going to get worse, and that's fine. It's just that I don't. It's irrelevant for my investment case because that just means everything's going to kind of go to zero. And so I, I'm just kind of like, you know, that's not that's not feasible for me, right? So I'm gonna really willing to take that risk as an investor and I talk to advisors and they're kind of the same mindset, willing to take that risk, but you really highlighted that it Pierre, it's focusing on selective pockets of quality that look like they'll be well positioned to survive a recovery when a recovery doesn't work.
0: Our investors, uh, you know, how long before investors adopt a mindset? Well, uh, I just feel like being defensive about everything. Uh, it, it, it's probably really hard right now uh, for advisors to get past the barrier, which is the the psychological barrier that, you know, everything's going to hell. And, and, uh, I don't know if I can withstand it anymore. Interesting thing that, that I saw just that I heard the other day, just it was a, a sort of something that was talked about in passing on, on one of the, um, business channels, I think CNBC was the idea that, that, Really, we haven't reached uh some you know some folks looking at sentiment for example that 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 sentiment bearish sentiment was around fifty percent um, meanwhile you've got the vix as of the twenty seventh of March it was sitting at eighty you know just shy of eighty three it's still uh, in the
1: fifties and sixties yeah
0: yeah, which uh you know so there's obviously there's a lot of fear but 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 the the point of the discussion that was made the other day that I'm talking about was that. We haven't reached that point yet where where investors are still thinking, might still be thinking, you know, do I buy the dip or do I not? Uh, that maximum that maximum fear factor hasn't been reached yet. And that means that, that we haven't actually, we probably haven't seen the bottom yet. Um, there's a good chance, although some uh, well-known investors have been chipping away, you know, at, 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 again, very selectively buying things that they like. Uh, but it seems to be really inactive. You know, would you agree that that this has become really an active market? Uh, you mean, in terms of active, active, active security selection.
1: One of the go things ahead, that I ahead. look at. One of the no, it's, it's it's a great question because one of the things that I look at quite frequently is um, ETF flows. Right, ETF flows are really good um, sort of indicator of retail and to some degree institutional sentiment in the marketplace. Right, because if you're doing. Um, at this kind of point in the market you're trying to do a tactical asset allocation you're trying to figure out like I, where do i want to be in right and, and i don't have time to go look at you know which you know i don't for example on your Gilead example i don't need i don't have time to go see if regeneron or Gilead or john j and j are going to get the vaccine right? i'm going to buy all three right i'm just going to go so etfs are a great way of getting a good idea of market sentiment um interestingly enough in canada uh, february was the best month ever for etf flows Another uh, almost $3 billion went into ETFs in Canada last month, almost entirely on the equity side. Uh, in the U.S.,
0: wow. buying it's fantastic. equities.
1: Yeah. But what is that telling you? Um, it's telling you that we're nowhere near the bottom in terms of that market psychology. Um, people are conditioned to buy with these kind of valuations. And really, you don't hit the bottom until you have like almost people with like a complete contrarian bias all the time buying. Um, so to me, it actually is concerning, uh, only in so much as you have all this net buying while the VIX is at uh, still net all-time high. So you have, it, it's not going to take a whole lot to to make this completely collapse from here, and that's when you'll start to get capitulation. Right? You get capitulation at 40-50% declines, which I'm not calling that, Right? I don't have a crystal ball to call this stuff, but certainly the conditions are there that we could see that kind of decline. Like, what if so there was three billion dollars of net buying in Canadian ETFs last month, um, and February was the best month ever. So you had that dip in February, and then a huge amount of money came in because it's like ten percent by the dip. Uh, but then uh, you've still had net buying across the board on equities, U.S. equities, Canadian equities across the Canadian ETF industry, which is a sentiment indicator, right? It's telling you that people really uh, and professional investors, engaged investors, they're not scared yet.
0: And, and, and they' still they're still they're still in that mindset of, of uh, Tina right, right? there's right. there's no alternative like right. well, you know this is going to go on forever because of the Fed interventions because of of, of easy money because yeah, so uh, the gigantic quantitative easing that that's been launched uh, has obviously left those folks in the market who, who have who have been taking advantage of it, uh, you know don't fight the Fed uh, for for as you know going back 10, 11 years now. Um, but, but in reality, you got to look at the stimulus and you got to wonder, uh, is it going to be enough? Uh, is it going to cover, you know, can it be enough? Uh, anyways, yeah. So, so sentiment, sentiment didn't wave waver. No, not at all. As much, as much and, as you would imagine it had.
1: Right. And so I looked at, you know, that, that big rally we had on, uh, the, a uh, couple weeks ago, and really we've seen, we're actually like almost up 20% from the bottom. Um, uh, that was hit in mid-March like last time we had a day like where we had 11 or 12% in one day was like uh, 1933 um, we had a day like that in 2008 in October remember we didn't hit the bottom until March of 2009 yeah. and again I don't need to have valuations or sentiment indicators at this point it's psychology again it, that, all that's suggesting to you is that we haven't reached the point of maximum pessimism Um, people still feel good about their ability to go out and do things. And psychologically, you see that as well. Like the amount of people who still kind of feel like, you know, we're not in any kind of new normal situation, even though this is unprecedented, there's still a lot of optimism. And that's great from a human experience perspective. But from an investing standpoint, it probably glosses over some of the real challenges that are going to be there. So long term, I believe we will have a recovery long term. I believe somewhere in here is buying opportunity. But I, right now, I, I don't know. Um, uh, it just seems that things have bounced back too fast, given the severity of the crisis. What if we're Mark. in down in the United States for another six months, right?
0: Well, there's a lot of hope in the market, isn't there? It, it is its is surreal what is going on. Right. Um, it's bizarre that there's still, you know, a huge percentage of the population that, that is still complacent about the pandemic. And perhaps that's, you know, that's the very reason why, you know, in some places it has spread faster. I'm just trying to speak to the uh, complacency in general and the mentality, you know, by the dip. There's no there's no alternative really uh, in the long term. That may very well prove to be true. It may not prove to be true for the entire market, but for certain segments of the market and the economy, I, I, I think. And we're, we're really still blindsided by a lot of what's going on. And uh, if you just look at un- unemployment, unemployment. Um, six million, <laughs> yeah, it's it's outrageous. I mean, but if you just look over a two week period from last week to this week, three point two eight million plus six point six—that's just shy of ten million jobs. And remember when, that when the year. last
1: the, la- the last record was six hundred twenty two thousand in nineteen eighty two, which was you know the worst recession of our lifetime, really, probably worse than 08 and oh nine to be honest.
0: It's no exaggeration now to say that this is the worst economic event of our lifetimes, and then some. But I think I think, you know, as investors, uh, you know, we need to figure out how to preserve what we have as much as possible. And then we need to give a lot of thought as to uh, where to deploy it uh, eventually or how to do, how to redeploy or how to rebalance portfolios. Beyond that, obviously, is, is the much larger issue of our lives and what's life going to be like post this period. It's, it's impossible to know this thing could blow over in three months or it could take, it could take a year.
1: Well, I've been talking to a lot of advisors and, and I will, I'm actually pretty impressed at the mindset of most advisors that I'm talking to and the way that they're framing, you know, and these are good advisors, right? These are advisors that are running hundreds of millions of dollars. So, you know, there's a good carryover to your audience and really what their advice is to clients is, is it's one word quality. So what you do in these kind of events is understand that when you buy when you're buying at the bottom, it's never going to feel good to be buying at the bottom, right? Like it, it, when I was Absolutely. covering this in in December, January of 2000 so December 2008, January 2009, I didn't know a single person that was long. Right? I didn't know anybody like even professional well-versed investors. The only people that were willing to tell what they were doing were people that had been short going into that marketplace. It does not feel good, right? You 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 know it's the most every bone field. in your body is going to tell you want to sell right, but mm. at least we have that as as a as a run up. So advisors that went through 2008 2009, what they're telling me is there's a focus on quality. Why? And then I'll get into the specifics. Why is there a focus on quality? Well, look historically what happens when we come out of a, a financial crisis. What moves first? Well, it's quality cash flow positive assets, and this is both on the fixed income and and the equity side. Uh, simply because these are companies, A, that have ma- maintained cash flow positive during the crisis and B, have the ability then to move forward. So what you end up doing is you end up looking at the assets that you felt were too expensive, that were trading at a, you know, at, at a higher multiple um, going into the crisis. Uh, not real estate utilities, but this would be things like uh, really high quality Canadian banks like an RBC, for example, which RBC is not going under, right? Like, like. RBC goes under. We're in the kind of scenario that we can't even imagine. Um, uh, uh, Buying uh, buying the staples in the U.S. and then buying the Nasdaq, and and the Nasdaq has become the new Dow Jones. Like remember, the Dow Jones index is price weighted, so your number one holding the Dow Jones is Boeing.
0: You know that's going. That's literally being decimated. Yeah, there's no business there, and they'll have
1: to be bailed out because we'll need air travel at some point. But it won't be. It won't be a viable business for quite some time. Um, but back to the back to the, the quality argument is that, yeah. um, you know, so I'll, dividend stocks are a perfect example. So if I take the MSCI world and then I took a look at the MSCI high dividend paying stocks, the MSCI world, for those who aren't familiar, is the global 3,000 largest stocks in the world. If I take the dividend paying segment of that, after every kind of crisis, so whether it's 08, 09, 11, 87, 2000, there's a huge run up in those stocks coming out of the crisis. And the reason for that is actually pretty simple. Uh, Number one, what happens in a crisis? Interest rates fall to zero. So if the one thing that we know about, and particularly for Canadian retail investors and their advisors, is that they have a need for income, right? If I have a million dollar portfolio, I need to earn 40 grand on it, roughly, roughly, let's let's say. Well, that's 4% yield. Where are you getting a 4% yield? You're not getting it from government bonds not gonna be getting from government bonds for a long time so you have to look at quality dividend paying equities and you have to look at uh quality corporate bonds and those two asset classes it's almost like a perfect v coming out of a crisis we don't know when the crisis ends but we do know that they come out of a perfect crisis so when i'm talking to advisors right now their headspace is already there they saw this before so you know right or wrong they're loading up on canadian banks because you're getting 6% now buying Canadian banks, which, you know, there's not sure, the 10% is- yield you got, but sure. But my clients know that they're happy with that. Uh, the NASDAQ, as I said, is the new Dow because the top holdings are Microsoft, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, all these transformative companies that have really established themselves as I would say, essential companies in this crisis. And then you have things like Starbucks and Costco and, other well-established retailers, that's America now. That's the new consumer economy. That's the quality economy. So you, you're also seeing a movement towards that. So if you use that anchor of quality and you have that conversation with clients, they start to get it because they still have to do certain things with their portfolio. And you will see just from a secular need that as we come out of a crisis, those things that are essential and those things that pay quality sources of income, especially higher than what you'll get with bonds are the things that move
0: first. Yeah, that's impressive. It sounds like they were preparing for this. They were preparing for the change in the market, for for a change in sentiment. This exogenous event to come along and and disrupt everything. Uh, no one could have known that it was going to be this, this idea that that you know it was going to be the Fed forever and quantitative easing forever, and we're never you know we're going to have lower rates for longer, and uh, all of these things that reassured a, one segment of investors sort of, you know, was doing the exact opposite to another segment of investors, which which was scaring them. So now, w- when it comes to ETFs versus individual stocks, uh, there seems to be an ETF for practically every segment everything, in the market, everything yeah, in the industry, and in can- so, and so and in Canada, you yeah. have
1: active as well, right? So 30% of our product is active. You are going to see a fair amount of dispersion as we highlighted, right? You're going to have, if you look at the S&P 500, you're going to have stocks that are clearly impaired. Relative to stocks that are well positioned, um, but the but the index will start to reflect that. So if you're talking about large cap equities, you probably your best default is an index strategy. Um, I, I to, and just owning whatever it is you want in that sector. And there's 3,000 ETFs that a Canadian investor can buy. That's including the you know 800 in Canada and 22 to 2400 in the U.S. So it's easy for you to buy whatever
0: you want in that regard. Yeah, active. So you active don't. You, manage- Hmm? You don't. You don't. You don't. You don't just wholesale abandon the 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 indexes. No. Or the S and P five hundred. Yeah.
1: Especially not in the large cap segment, because what happens is once uh, earnings comes through, the the larger stocks are going to move quickly, and the stocks that are performing poorly will move down. And if you have a concentrated portfolio where you get any of those calls wrong, you could be really offside. Right. So. Um, you know, I'm part of some value investing groups and they're always talking about like when do you go and buy Carnival Cruises like I, I don't know I would never buy that but you know that's that's yeah that's kind of scary kind of investing where the indices are going to kind of give you that sector move and 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 there's we saw in 08 and 09 that the indices still ca- maintain sort of top quartile top decile performance for the last five years S&P 500 is Outperform 95% of active managers. Maybe it comes down to 85% in this market. Maybe some active managers did a little more cash, but it won't be enough to really meaningfully make you want to move away from that. Uh, But on the dividend side and on the the fixed income side, this is where you may want to look at some sort of active approach, um, especially on the credit side, because credit's all about credit analysis. So you want to have credit analysis in looking at what the value of the underlying assets are and who's positioned to not default right that's really important yeah right Um, so that's where and and you're also trading in the otc market so uh etfs have allowed for uh, a lot more movement into credit um from etfs etfs are probably the largest source of inventory for corporate bonds in the world and even the feds right well they have to that's the only way to so they circumvent the otc market they basically allow bonds to trade in the secondary market is both to the over-the-counter market. Um, the problem with that from an indexing standpoint is that the OTC market is a constrained small group of investors, both in the US and Canada. We're talking large dealers, guys that are very sophisticated in terms of how they price things because they don't have to worry about market efficiency of stocks. So they can choose just not to bid for anything, um, but they're not going to do that if you're a big institutional credit manager who needs to get in. They need to maintain that relationship. That's where I would want to have an active manager in this kind of market uh, picking bonds yeah. uh, simply Absolutely. because they have the ability to work the institutional OTC market. They're not forced to sell. You know, we're an index. They have to sell relative to their weight. So they're just selling things and buying things. Um, and there's so there's a lot of structural impediment on the indexing side. So I would be uh, much more comfortable with an active strategy of fixing them. Dividends, I also feel the same way. Uh, Active strategies on dividends, you know, I don't want to talk our own book at Horizons, but we have a great relationship with Guardian Capital. But what I do like to see is that they are looking at sustainability of dividends and there will be some shocks in the dividend market. Um, Real estate and utilities, for example, which are historically low vol stocks. But what's happened is that if you are a company that doesn't pay, uh, doesn't have a lot of earnings growth, but you're still a viable company, well, how do you demonstrate value to investors? demonstrated value to investors by borrowing at a low interest rate and then boosting your dividend with that and doing buybacks and boosting your dividend well that's going to come to an end right we're seeing a decrease in utilities exactly. definitely a de- re- decrease in re- real estate so these historically defensive stocks could be in a lot of trouble again those are in dividend indices again I, I would prefer to have an active manager who can make you make a call on you know i probably want to de-risk this portion of the index
0: I think one of the things that was striking about this downturn that we've experienced the last month was the Fed's intervention, or what precipitated it. Many look back at at, at last month's activities from the Fed and and from uh, the Senate, two trillion dollars in stimulus, the the commitment to intervene in in bond purchases, and and they think that that was that coincided with the stock market crash. But in reality, it's what's going on behind the curtain. What was going on in, in the bond market, particularly in the corporate bond market. Is what precipitated the Fed's intervention—that the bond market was experiencing a seizure. So that's one area that we should we should touch on. It's uh, silly to think that we're just going to return back to normal. You know, if you think January 2020 is back to normal, you know it's going to be a long, long time if ever we get back to that normal because life is changing. People are going to get used to new habits. People who had long thought that they would love to work from home are now getting to do it in a forceful kind of way that might actually tip the scale that that becomes a new normal. I know I'm rambling on here. The other thing is that the Fed intervention didn't rescue the entire bond market, the entire credit market. It was actually quite selective. And the areas that it focused on have had sort of a, a immediate V-shaped recovery, but the areas that that were left out of the uh, Fed's intervention are in trouble. The uh, commercial uh, REIT space, the mortgages that support that space, are not being rescued by the Fed, and some of those mortgage REITs in the U.S. are are facing a fair bit of trouble right now. The credit market is frozen for them, or
1: private uh, debt absolutely demolished, right?
0: When it comes to fixed income, like just going just going out and buying, you know, uh, an index of high yield uh, doesn't seem you know it didn't seem prudent before, but now it even, even more so. It doesn't seem prudent to ignore some of the fundamentals that are shaping the credit market today.
1: Well, the 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 one thing about ETF, and this, this, the ETFs are actually in, very interrelated to this particular topic um, because. ETFs, uh, as I, I mentioned earlier, allow for bonds to be traded like stocks. and So they create pricing transparency. We call it a quote-unquote lit market. And it's done wonderful things in terms of reducing the cost of transacting a fixed income, reducing liquidity of, tra- of, of fixed income. But one of the big um, and I do believe this, it's a debatable topic, but I, this is my personal take on it. Um, one of the things that came out of the 08-09 crisis is through the sort of um, uh, Dodd-Frank legislation, they started to force dealers not to hold bonds on inventory. right? So They don't want you sitting on bonds because the financial crisis was basically precipitated by the fact that you had huge amounts of extraordinarily risky debt that these companies were sitting on and then had to be bailed out. So they didn't want to have to go through that again. So it created to a certain degree, you know, I'm an ETF advocate, but it did create a bit of a shadow banking situation where now all that credit sits on the balance sheets of ETFs. And so we Mm -hmm. call it the uh, Hotel California, uh, you know, one of the most overplayed soft rock songs. But basically what ends up happening is that (laughs) you can check in, but you can never check out. Um, So if you wanna buy a bond, very easy to buy. If you wanna sell a bond, you have to go through the OTC market and there's not a lot of buyers. Um, So when you have an exit where everybody is rushing for the exit, you have the OTC market on the credit side saying, whoa, hold up a second. We have no idea. What the credit quality of any of these bonds are right now? I mean, you're trying to sell me Boeing bonds, like I'm not buying that, right? And then, by the way, that's in the same product as, um, you know, bonds by, you know, other more liquid companies and names. That's fine. I'm not taking any of that. So. What ends up happening is the individual bonds themselves, a lot of them were going no bid in the OTC market. And so then people are selling ETFs. Now There's lots of inventory in the secondary market, so people can actually get pricing in ETFs. But the net asset value of ETFs, that's how ETFs are calculated, that is calculated by looking at what the last price of that security was traded. Well, if the security hasn't traded at all, uh, that price is obviously not reflective its fair market value. So the NAV right. of the ETFs would be one thing, but the price could be in some cases, 15 or t- we saw some cases where it was 15 to 20% lower. Uh, wow. And that's unfair, right? In terms of what was happening. And that's simply because the ETF market makers would get the units of bonds, uh, that were being given to them and they'd have to go to the OTC market and there's no bid. So then they blow out the spreads because they have to protect their own hedging, we right? the Delta hedge and they have to protect their own risk and so you have these wide bid-ask spreads that created complete paralysis in the credit market and what the credit market pricing was saying is that like corporate america is about to die um and from the fed's perspective and back to your kitchen sink analogy is the the fed really doesn't care as much about the equity market because if equity ownership if people lose money on the ownership the company still exists to a certain degree right their financing comes from debt so what they wanted to do is they needed to put liquidity into that marketplace because at the end of the day, companies need to have some source of financing. And North America runs on leverage, right? Like the, the, the way that things work is you get leverage and then you operationally move forward with that. And so there's there's really as much as we've unwound a lot of the leverage that was excessive in 0809, and there's still a huge amount of corporate debt in the corporate bond market and there needs to be liquidity. Uh, ETFs though, what ETFs have shown their value is that ETFs do have liquidity. You can buy and sell an ETF, but with some of these underlying bonds, you can't actually sell them. So that's a key differential that people, they you know, they want to point out as ETFs are the bad guys because there's discounts, not realizing that the ETFs actually provide this opportunity to actually have daily liquidity. Just using the analogy of triage. Um, you know, as you're seeing, you know, New York hospitals have to start putting in triage in terms of who needs ventilators, who needs the most amount of critical care, right? Is a bit of a hack night example, but it, it does apply to how the Fed's thinking about things on an economic standpoint. Is you know, it needs to make sure that there's money funneling to corporate America so that money is being spent and the economy Absolutely. is at least moving forward. And the only way they can do that is through direct movement into the corporate bond market. And the ETFs have actually functioned very importantly as a liquidity mechanism that didn't really exist in 08 and 09, and that you can still buy and sell ETFs. There's always a bid for buying and selling ETFs. So, that in itself has created liquidity. And then, as long as there's money in the OTC market, it can support that to a certain degree. Whereas, if you're transacting individual bonds, you can have no bid. Um, and that really highlights, again, the, the importance of some of these functional levels. But a lot of the corporate credit market right now is on this very nascent need to have the fed keep funneling money and i don't know how long right. that goes for but if it stops then we basically see the driver of, of 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 expenditure in corporate america
0: i'm not being critical of what the fed has yeah how, no no, of how, course how, no. How, how the fed has proceeded i think it's it's uh it's incredible uh you know what the fed has has uh, undertaken to, to you know to solve we've only seen the beginning of the fed's intervention there's probably a lot more so it's going to be very interesting i think to see where the fed directs its secondary moves you know your your analogy coming back to the triage that's going on in hospitals each day brings new measures it kind of illustrates the point that there's still a lot of poor visibility
1: to that point on the policy side, and again this dovetails into investment thesis, is one of the really interesting things that I'm seeing happen in the marketplace is that East Asia's ability to contain this, in particular South Korea, Taiwan, um, Hong Kong, to a lesser extent, and China, has actually created a premium in those marketplaces. So. One of the stories that's not making its way into the investor media, I don't know if it's political bias or whatever. I I don't think so. I just think that there's not things they're covering, is that the CSI 300, which is the top Chinese stock market, is basically flat year-to-date. It's not down 30% the way the S&P 500 is. Um, That's investors in Asia and institutional investors outside of North America are buying Asian equities. And the other thing that's really interesting is that the U.S. dollar... Um, it has rallied against Canada because of our energy prices, but it's not rallied against the rest of the world, right? Versus things like the yen and the, uh, and the, and the Rembimbi and things that it hasn't. Where in other crises it does. So it's not the safe haven it once was. Now, part of that is because of the massive amount of stimulus that you're highlighting. But also, I think there is a fundamental change here and that people are now looking to how East Asia dealt with the crisis, and are actually saying there's a real leadership here and how they're going to get on track a lot faster than North America. And so um, to your point, I think we're still kind of fuddling our way through policy response, where if you look at like South Korea, for example, they were testing everybody. Um, They had the tests in place and they were for the most part able to contain it. I'm owned by a large um, South Korean conglomerate uh, that owns our company. So, And and for the most part they're back working and they're moving forward. Our inability to kind of stop things and deal with the curve the same way is actually creating a huge risk premium on North American assets of all kinds, including U.S. Treasury and U.S. dollars. So that's something that's been very interesting. And coming out of a leadership position, um, I do wonder how much of a relative performance you start to see uh, the large Asian economies um, start to trade at a premium Relative to the U.S., uh, simply because there's a tacit understanding that they've they've simply had a better policy response than we have here in North America to
0: the virus. It's it's certainly demonstrative. It's ironic. Uh, it's demonstrative too of 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 how you know a command economy such as China uh, would would be able to invoke what was initially described as draconian those kinds of measures would have been very difficult at the outset in europe and in north america you know nobody would have would have you know there would have been rioting you know there would have there would have been some kind of uh rancor uh you know when you look at what's happening in italy and spain what it demonstrates is that they more or less wanted to continue to go about their lives like they always do um and that that's probably what aggravated the spread there uh, but it seems to be happening in the, in the US as well. I very prematurely say that that maybe you know in Canada we're doing a better job, uh, although it's probably too early to tell. I don't think we're gonna come out of this the same way we went in.
1: So you're making you're making a great point. Like it's it, and that's kind of where I was going as well. It's just that for the most part, East Asia, and, and again, China is hard to trust what's happened there. So I really look towards Taiwan and, and South and uh, South Korea
0: as examples, but a little, a little more transparent. yeah,
1: right. But like in terms of their ability to kind of create the recovery, they were able to do so, um, and they were already starting to improve their economic situation. Um, to your point, though, about things not being the same, is if we can't, if we if we end up in an Italy and Spain situation, like the two trillion dollars that the Fed put in is just the tip of the iceberg, right? We probably are looking at like five to seven trillion dollars in stimulus, and. We don't know what the long-term hangover of that's going to be because at some point in time, globally, they'll have to be a reckoning in terms of how does the U.S. pay its back, right? And Canada, like it or not, regardless of what our policy response is, you know, knock on wood, it's, it's, it seems better, which means that you know our, our our mortality rate is less. But economically, we're intertwined with the U.S., so wherever the U.S. goes, Canada's going, um, and that's that's that 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 is a long-term concern for me. Like I said, I think things recover over time, but leadership position in the world things that are that are valued that that certainly to your point that that changes considerably i think when things when it does so
0: yeah and you know what you just said just just recalls memory of the uh, the old saying was if the u.s catches a cold well you know yeah (laughs) yes so Exchange-traded funds have had a really great run. So Mark, how, given, given all the controversial debates that have arisen during this very successful run that ETFs have had over the last 10 years, we've had a month of very stressful markets and definitely ETFs have been tested What's, how have ETFs actually performed given all the stress of the last month in the markets, the equity dislocations, wherever whatever they may be, wherever they may be, the liquidity dislocations in the fixed income market, how have ETFs actually performed?
1: Well, they've been stressed and I think they've been tested and I think they've passed actually with flying colors. Uh, I'd be remiss not to talk a little bit about like different asset classes behave different ways in this kind of environment, but you know, on the equity side, we'll start with large cap equities. Uh, there's net inflows in U.S. equities and Canadian equities over the last two months, and equity valuations are down. That's, and that's very surprising. Yeah,
0: I mean, it's oh, not, I mean it, it, it isn't it. It is. It isn't. It isn't.
1: Right, but it, it highlights that ETFs are not wagging the dog there. It, it's it's really a case of there's ten times the amount of money. Uh, well, ten times in Canada the amount of money on the mutual fund side relative to ETFs in the U.S. It's Probably about a 2 to 1 split now in mutual funds versus ETFs uh, in terms of how much flow is. So ETFs can certainly be on a day-to-day basis. They can certainly move valuations because they could be anywhere from 20 to 30% of the market volume. Um, but on the ownership side, they're like maybe 8% now. Uh, 6% was the last number I saw about 18 months ago. It's a lot of work to figure that out. But you're, the point of the matter is, is that on the large cap equity side, they're simply not big enough, believe it or not successful as they've been to really move valuations and on indexing side uh, the index is is really what the index is capturing is the overall market efficiency and outlook of of the broader market and so it doesn't move the index valuations it's quite the opposite as as stocks go up and down uh they start to reflect that and I, I always use a Warren Buffett example of the fact that in 2014, they asked him what he was going to do with his estate, what he didn't give to charity. He and Bill Gates are going to give most of their estate to charity. But what he, you know, to the beneficiaries that are lucky enough to get, you know, a couple hundred million dollars from him when he passes, he said, you know, we're going to put that money in a trust where it's going to be invested in the S&P 500 and it's going to be invested in U.S. treasuries. Now, there's a number of philosophical reasons he believes in the omnipresence of U.S. stocks and Things like that. But the most important part was that statistically uh indices outperform active managers. And there's been no period in time where that's not been the case. Um, and, and the reason for that is that if you miss on the leadership of the US stock market in particular, but it also applies to Canada, is so narrow. It's usually like 12 to 15 stocks that really drive the majority of the return. So the last few years, it's been the fang stocks if you owned Microsoft, Netflix, and Amazon, but you didn't own Facebook, you got smoked, right? Like, And the thing is, if you have the indices, you have all those. And so on the way down, it's going to be the same thing. So any active manager that's out there saying that they're going to outperform a down market, unless they're being very concentrated, which means that their active risk is huge relative to the index, is going to is probably full of it. And what we see is that you know, this is a sales and marketing driven business, the asset management business. So fund managers, generally speaking, if they have huge underperformance versus the index, even for like a three to six month period, they enter a lot of sales and marketing pressure. Um, and they need to have a really good track record to hold, which is likely the way they would outperform with a concentrated portfolio. So they simply don't deviate from that. So like the beta of mutual funds and even like hedge funds to a certain degree relative to the broad equity market is huge. It's huge. So there's not there's really there's that that just doesn't hold weight. Um, On the second part, though, there is obviously on things like small caps or like let's say Canadian preferred shares where ETFs account for like uh, last I checked about three to four billion of like the 70 billion dollar market cap flow like that. Those ETFs can move the valuations and they do from inflows and outflows. But those are small cases Uh, again. But the benefit of ETFs, and this is where they've been stress tested, is that ETFs still trade more efficiently than the underlying securities. That is, you can get in and out of the ETF positions where you sometimes cannot get out on an individual position. Like if you try to sell a Canadian preferred share to a stressed market, your bid S spread could be like 20 cents or a dollar, where if you can get an ETF for like three to five cents. The same thing with the fixed income side, as I highlighted earlier, is that you could actually get out of the ETF at a market price. Uh, what was happening on the mutual fund side was really interesting is mutual funds have to um, redeem at NAV. So if you were a mutual fund holder, you're redeeming at NAV. So they're giving you the NAV valuation. But we have already identified that the NAV isn't necessarily the real to market, market price of those underlying securities. So all the existing mutual holders in those mutual funds, they got nailed pretty hard as there's redemptions coming out of the mutual funds because the mutual funds have to redeem at NAV. Great for the people getting out bad for the people in the structure so that's um that highlights just that you know as ETFs aren't a silver bullet they're not going to eliminate market drawdowns but typically on a relative basis we see that they held up very very well
0: but thank you for explaining that it's it's these little nuances you know are very helpful to to understand it's not an easy concept to explain as I did highlight though Pierre is as as
1: I don't want to be anti-mutual phone because There's a lot of active mutual fund managers. And so the way that they get around it is they're like, look, these unit holders are going to redeem a NAV. I'm going to move the portfolio around so that I'm I'm still protecting. And like that kind of alpha probably still offsets whatever the NAV dislocation was. But it is something to keep in mind.
0: Yeah. I wanted to talk about something because it, it was I mean, it was very instructive. And that was that the DOL rule mandated that 401k administrators who administer, I think it's close to $16 trillion of uh, retirement assets in the US, we're told that by mandate, under, under the rule, if they didn't add the recommendation to 401k participants, which is, you know as we all know, is the equivalent of RRSPs, that they could be held liable as administrators at the company level for not recommending the cheaper index option on two fronts. One is that they could be held liable for the difference in performance to the plan. And secondly, they could be held liable for the difference in cost. And so that really forced the hand of 401k administrators and their investment advisors to recommend index ETFs over any other active options, which caused a lot of advisors to be to say, if you can't beat them, join them. To what extent do you think that that has played a role? I mean, the popularity of ETFs happened from many different movements and and, and arguments that have uh, happened over the last decade and, and longer, uh, starting with John Bogle. What are your thoughts on that?
1: It's a really great point because the DOL rule was actually based on like a fiduciary obligation. And right. the fiduciary obligation was obviously held up by statistics We're saying like, if I could get the same exposure for two different investments, then I should buy the one that costs less because over time you can't control the market, but you can control what you pay for that exposure. But there's a more statistically profound aspect to that. Um, you know, I don't know if anyone here is a trivia fan, but you know, you remember that show, um, who wants to be a millionaire with Regis Philbin it was pretty yeah. it was a phenomenon <laughs> for a while. But anyways, they used to have the three different lifelines, right? What would happen is you have three different lifelines. You'd have, uh, the lifeline to uh, remove, you know, remove the different answers. You get a multiple choice, and you have the lifeline to, you know, call your brother-in-law and find out that he's been full of BS his whole life. And then you'd have the the um, pull the audience. Okay, so the pull the audience. And what I always found fascinating about the pull the audience, I'm a bit of a you know, I like to look at statistics, is that like the, the audience was right sort of like 85 percent of the time. And right. the reason they're right 85 percent of the time was because. All the people that we're at, who wants to Million a millionaire, we're hoping to get on the show, so they're trivia bugs, right? It's the same thing with like Jeopardy. When they do Jeopardy, and they figure out like what is the reason that Ken Jennings is so much better than the other people, it's because he clicks faster. Honestly, like they all know. No, I'm serious. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, um, Warren Buffett is a brilliant guy, and, and John Bogle was almost like a mathematical genius, and, and he's the guy that brought about indexing. And and you know, they both would have told you, you know, if. I could buy Coca-Cola in 1972 PE. I'm gonna buy that all day. And all of Wall Street's gonna buy that all day. And that's because the amount of efficiency in the equity market has so many brilliant people against each other that the, what the index is, the index is telling you what their outlook is. The index literally is that pull the audience there. And so you have to have either a lot of hubris or be a little bit out there on the contrarian side for you to think that you could outperform that index when you're up against everybody else that has kind of the same level of information. Again, as I told you before, fixed income is OTC, so there's a lot more pricing yep. inefficiencies. There's dealer arrangements and things like that that make a difference. But when it comes to large cap equities, um, that's what ends up happening. And so you end up seeing flows into these ETFs and you end up seeing the DOL recommend that because statistically they're looking at what is a large cap equity fund manager doing and they're they're not delivering any value on average relative to the index and strategies and that's barren out by ETF flows globally so there's there's uh five almost yeah five trillion dollars roughly or actually almost six trillion actually now in ETFs five and a half trillion is in market cap indices so the growth of ETFs has come from the growth of indexing simply because of that statistical phenomenon where there's market efficiency, there's price discovery and a group of investors who are dealing with the same best case scenarios. Um, To your final point, and, and this is where it gets interesting, is, is the implications that for the asset management industry, for people to be offering active strategies, they got to focus on active strategies in the peripheries, uh, in the sectors. In concentrated portfolios so basically what they have to do is they have to take so much active risk and it is active risk that they have to look very different from the indices in order for them to really be demonstrating the value of their fees. and there's a lot of risk in doing that purely from a from an equity standpoint but i think that's we're already seeing that in canada where a lot of the new product innovation is on the alternative side um, a lot of the big mutual fund companies have moved into the etf space certainly the same in the us Uh, Recognizing that kind of when it comes to pulling the audience on large cap equities, you're either got to be a little bit crazy or like just an absolute outlying genius to be able to beat all these very intelligent people that are dealing with the market efficiency in the same level of market.
0: My last, the last thing I wanted to talk to you about because it got a lot of attention was the fact that to bring all of these controversial debates about ETFs together, Michael Burry, who was well known for Calling the subprime catastrophe uh, back in 2008, became famous as a result of Michael Lewis's book, uh, The Big Short. Michael Burry compared index funds to the toxic collateralized debt obligations that he made so much money shorting when the 2008 real estate bubble blew up. Burry's claim is that the flows into index funds are distorting both stock and bond markets and he said that when those flows reverse it will be ugly. Is there any is there any credence to comparing Uh, ETFs to collateralize debt obligations. Maybe he's talking about whatever liquidity dislocations can happen when when large amounts of assets are changing hands. Is there any credence to this argument?
1: Well, there was a bit of a disconnect between how the media reported that and what he was saying. I mean, he's a rational uh, analyzer of data almost to a fault, right? Like he lets the data dictate everything he does. I mean, if you've seen the big short, you know, look how long he went on that trade, right? Almost went insolvent, waiting for that to happen um but where where there's some credence to his argument i mean obviously i've been pro etfs where there's some credence to his argument is where the market float cap of an individual security is majority held by an index etf okay if that exists then what he's talking about is true to a certain degree that if you get a net outflow of the etf and the etf is the large owner of that security uh, or etfs are large owners of that security then you'll see outflows um the media reported that is like, you know, basically like, you know, watch out on the S&P 500. And when I went in more kind of deep dive what he was saying, that's not really what he was talking about. I think he thinks that on the bottom end of the S&P 500, but really what he was talking about was sort of like the Russell 2000, so like small cap names. And certainly, you know, if I put like Canadian preferred share ETFs uh, on his radar, I'm sure he'd, he'd lose it mm-hmm. um, because you have uh, you have so much of the market float cap being held by the ETFs. But a certain degree, you have to also understand that uh, once the ETF holds the majority, or once the ETFs are the big dog in that space, they still are the sector. So if people exit the ETFs, then they're effectively exiting the sector. So whether they move the valuations up or down, it's sort of irrelevant, right? Marijuana is another perfect example where ETFs are a large aspect of that. Well, that's the sector play. That's how a large group of investors were getting exposure to the sector. As they're leaving, they're not leaving because... Oh, my stock isn't worth what it was worth anymore. No, they're leaving the sector. And the sector is the ETF. So the, it, it's not like there's an opportunity to find a dislocation there. And yes, does it does it does it increase the magnitude of the sell-off? Certainly. But it doesn't, it it doesn't, I uh, it doesn't eliminate the fact that that those ETFs are what are being used by a huge swath of investor to get sector exposure. It's the same thing with HYI and HYG in the United States which are the two large high yield bond ETFs. That's how institutions use liquidity to trade tactically high yield, fixed income. When they exit those trades, they are generally bearish on fixed income. So yeah, it's good to create a sell off, but that's because that is the sector move. So he's right in so much as they uh, accelerate the magnitude of the sell off in these asset classes. But it's not really something that's like avoidable if it was dispersed elsewhere, simply because there's a preference for the investors to get out of that sector exposure. So, yeah, um, it's not something that keeps me up at night or makes me really worried at all. Uh, what 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 worries me is more yeah. about why people want to leave those sectors.
0: It sounds like, like if I understand, like, I appreciate your explanation. I think the what the parallels that he's drawing is the bundling of assets. Right. So in the CDO crisis, there was a whole lot of highly regarded assets uh, you know high quality combined with low quality and and so the problem arose that that you couldn't sell any of it if nobody wanted the low quality part of it because it was sort of an all-or-nothing the cdo trade was sort of an all-or-nothing trade like either i want all of this or i don't want any of it because of the sort of crap debt obligations but I, i guess the where the hole in the argument is uh with uh a high yield index there's definitely components in the high yield index for the, which is the example that you used. There's definitely components within the high yield index that that are lower quality than than on a relative basis than than the higher quality components. But the view on that is not necessarily an all or nothing view.
1: Right. Well, and I'll use an example. Right. Like I'm just looking right now at a, a marijuana stock valuations, which I have to follow fairly closely because we're large asset manager yeah. of that. Uh, um, Yep. So Canopy which is the, probably the most widely called stock is down about 69% on a one year basis and Aurora is down 90%. Wow. So using his yeah. argument uh Aurora's probably Aurora and Canopy have probably been oversold by the net selling out of the sector but at the end of the day no one's having a party cuz they're holding Canopy over Aurora right? down 60 65% relative to 90%. Where he would be looking at it as like I'm in these higher quality assets that are being dislocated more, um, and they're taking everything down, but it's still, it's not like CDOs where, um, you know, you have credit risk is either a zero or a hundred kind of some game where either the the credit is at risk or it's not. With equities, there's various shades of decline, so I can't you can't use that parabola um, because. Yeah, they, you could have an ETF that has really bad stocks, but guess what happens to those really bad stocks? They go to zero, they don't go to zero, but they go close to zero, or they get punted out of the index and they bring the index down with them, sure. And they bring the stocks that are in the index potentially down with them as well. But if there's a resurgence in view, uh, and then the stocks start to go up, you you know, th- that will happen. Whereas as, as with, a, with a credit in investment, if a credit investment now like, oh, I think that credit's going to zero, well, that, that that that's not recoverable, right? That's yeah. that's, that's gone.
0: So yeah, there so is the, that same parable. Yeah, the, the considerations are all are completely different. Which is why I think that's what I was trying to say, which which is that, you know, in the CDO example, uh, it really was all or nothing. Uh, I don't I don't if I have to buy that crap in order to own the good stuff as well that's in there, I'd rather not have it at all. And, and so CDOs were written down very sharply, but that's not, that's not going to apply to an index of, of small cap stocks as, because, as you said, everything has its own shade.
1: And there's sector beta. So if, whether it's gold miners or, you know, low, small cap energy stocks, if there's a rebound in energy prices, let's take the energy example, then like maybe a couple of those stocks go out of business. But if you have a sector ETF, at least you're going to get the rebound because you hold the stocks that might survive. And so the the challenge for someone like Mark Bury is to come out and tell me exactly what stocks are capitalized to re, to go up on a rebound and which stocks are going to go out of business. And that's that's a difficult question. Right? I can't yeah. answer that for most of the sectors that I look at. I don't know. So I buy the ETF knowing that yeah, I'm not going to get the performance of the top performer in the sector, but I'm also not going to uh, hit the zero button on owning a stock that goes that goes out of business. And that's the basis of diversification. And and, you know, it's really funny, I had a really fun conversation with an advisor one time who said his his wealthiest client, you know, worth tens of millions of dollars, he put a bunch of index funds in front of him and said, you know, we got to look at diversification and stuff and the man said, listen, I'm extremely wealthy and all my wealthy friends, I can tell you emphatically, none of us got wealthy from being diversified, (laughs) right? (laughs) And risk, risk is part of this game. And so, you know, that's, that's that's the other thing to keep in mind, right? Is that it, active managers are taking on additional risk with some insight, but active bets come with risk. And, and that's, you know, something we're never, there's no free lunch in investing. There's something called risk premium. It's something we have to take into consideration.
0: Well, Mark, I, uh, I, think, I think we'll wrap up with that. I, I think this is, uh, thank you so much for your time. I know, you know, we're all sort of stuck at home. Uh, in this unprecedented time, it's kind of strange, but it's really nice to be able to make the most of it and have had a chance to have this conversation with you today and, and then to share it with everybody. So, Mark, thank you.
1: Thank you, as always. Keep up the great work at Advisor Analyst. It's a, a staple of my reading and I hope others start adding it as well.
0: Likewise, keep up the great work. Everything that you do with Horizons and everything you're doing for advisors, it's it's always exciting to talk to you.